All right, what's going on, everybody? We're doing well tonight? Make sure you're at a table with some other people. If you're at a table by yourself, get with some other people because it's chilly. So grateful that you're here on Wednesday night as we continue plugging away through the Gospel of John. Very grateful that you are here, that you've come to join us. A special thank you to the people who cooked and cleaned. Thank you so much for the hospitality who set up all this stuff. If you had coffee tonight, that's because someone set that up. If you had dessert tonight, that's because someone set that up. If you're sitting in a chair tonight, that's because someone set that up. Wasn't that wonderful worship tonight? No, you guys don't think that was wonderful worship? All right. Well, I thought it was wonderful because we're praising God. Yeah, it's probably uh, once a week or so that I get a, a phone call. I receive a, a phone call from the Oakland Raider reppin, the golf or die dyslexic, the as the world turns aficionado, the one and only Jeffrey Paul Rodriguez. So I get a phone call from him about, you know, once a week or so, and it's always the same question. He asks me, do you want to hear the good news or the bad news? And, and my response is just robotic. It's unchanging. It's, well, is there good news? Is there good news? Because, Jeff, I, I don't want to go through this blizzard of bad news without realizing that there, there is good news somewhere, Right? I want to ask you a table question to begin tonight. What type of a person are you? Are you a good news first person or a bad news first person and why? Go ahead and ask the, ta the, the table around you that question. Okay, by a show of hands, who's a bad news first person? Okay, put them down. Who's a, a good news first person? All right, who, who just says, like, don't, don't even tell me, just, like, walk away? We got a couple of you guys. When it comes to Jesus' lengthy discussion with his disciples in the Gospel of John, it spans four chapters. It starts in chapter 13, and it ends in chapter 17, and we are just in chapter 16. So we're trudging along through this lengthy discussion that Jesus has with his disciples. But during this discussion, he delivers a lot of not necessarily bad news, but tough news. And it's not bad news because, as we will find out later in the Gospel of John, Jesus overcomes. And ultimately, when we consider that, we are struck by the reality that, that the sufferings of our present day, they are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And that means that the bad news that we may face is only bad news for a little while. And it's merely tough news for the time being. Now, I'm not trying to downplay or minimize perhaps the tremendous pain that may rack your bones or the heartache that you may be experiencing. I'm just trying to say that tonight, the tough news that you and I are facing will one day be turned to joy. 
We we turn to, to laughter and dancing and peace and, of course, good news. For the disciples hearing this tough news in the Gospel of John tonight, it has to be worrisome. But the reassurances that Jesus gives are more precious than gold and more absolute than the rising sun. So let's turn to the good news, tough news that Jesus delivers tonight in the Gospel of John, chapter 16. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand with me. We do this because the Bible is what it's all about. My words are weak and frail and don't have much behind them, but the Word of God, it stands forever. Verse 16 says, or chapter 16, verse 1 says, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a while longer. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us tonight about the tough news and good news that we face. But we know that one day all of these things that we may experience and the hardship that we face, it will all be somehow turned to joy. And we await that glorious day. But Lord, give us the strength now to focus and live out the call you have on our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And go ahead and open your Bibles. If you have them with you, you can also follow along on a Bible app or on the screen as well. And we always, just so you know, we have Bibles in the back. Verse, two, verse 1 begins like this. I have told you these things. What things is Jesus talking about? The things about sending the Holy Spirit. The things about the need for the disciples to live for Jesus. The things about the world's hatred. And the things about being, well, persecuted as a community of believers. But I've told you these things, it says, so that you won't abandon your faith. I mean, that's the gist of it. At least I've told you this good news about the Holy Spirit coming so that when the tough news about the world's hatred and persecution of the community comes to your door, you won't abandon your faith. In Greek, the idea of that last part, that you won't abandon your faith, it comes from the word, the verb, scandalizo. It's where we get our English word scandal from. But in the Gospel of John, the verb means to trip up the disciples or to, to cause them to fall away from Jesus' company. The clearest example of this scandalizo is obviously personified by the person of Judas Iscariot who falls away, who gets tripped up and ends up betraying Jesus. But Jesus says, I have told you these things the good and tough news, so that you won't abandon your faith. Verse 2 says, For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. 
So, dear disciples, you should know by now that I, Jesus, must suffer and die and on the third day be raised from the dead. And you might think that, that such victory means the end of all things and then it's happily ever after. <laughs> but let me just tell you now in advance, you will face tough news, persecution, and martyrdom, dying for your faith as you carry out my mission. Don't be confused and don't abandon your faith. You will be expelled from the synagogues. Well, you may think, like, what's, what's a synagogue? Let's take a look at the synagogue was a place for Jewish prayer and worship with recognized leadership. The synagogue seems to have arisen, some think, during the post-exilic time or the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament I think it's probably more likely that it actually came about during the time of Israel's exile. The time when they were ripped up from their homeland and taken across the Fertile Crescent into modern-day Iraq, or back then, Babylon. They were associated in a ghetto of sorts, and so being far away from the temple, they just sort of met together in their groups, and synagogues started to form. A town could establish a synagogue if there were at least 10 men. And it was typical in New Testament periods for the synagogue, for like the service that we have, you know, on Sunday mornings. It would be different there, for it would be on, on Sabbath or other days. But the Old Testament scripture would be read and discussed by the men who were present. But if you were expelled from the synagogues. And remember, this is a time when Christianity, the following of Jesus, followers of the way, were, were deeply connected with their Jewish roots in Judaism. It wasn't seen as a separate religion of any sort. But if you were expelled from your synagogue, that means you'd be torn from the fabric of your community, your family, your friends, your, your, your business partners, etc. So Good luck finding an Airbnb. Good luck finding a Starbucks that will serve you. Good luck finding a police officer who will come to your aid. Let's look again at verse 2. There's no maybe or maybe not sense to Jesus' words here. There's no possibility of chance. This is what it says. For you will, you will be expelled from the synagogues. And oh, goody, uh, more good news. And the time is coming. Not might or possibly or perhaps will come, but the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. Doing a holy, pure, blameless, set-apart service for God. But wait, you know, I, I've been told before that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Maybe you've heard that before. I mean, but, but just look at these early Christians in the Roman Colosseum. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, but, but perhaps our understanding of wonderful needs some redefining. Because what better wonder, awe, privilege could we have than to live and die for our faith? Church history tells us that the, the disciples 
They were all put to death for their faith in Jesus. There's some division about the Apostle John. Let me go through it. Bartholomew was whipped and beheaded, as tradition goes. James, son of Alphaeus, beaten, stoned, and clubbed to death. Andrew, bound, not nailed, to a cross so that his suffering was prolonged. Peter, as tradition goes, was crucified upside down because he didn't want to, didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified in the way that Jesus was. Thomas thrust through with spears of four different soldiers. Philip whipped, imprisoned, and crucified. Matthew stabbed to death. Thaddeus crucified. Simon crucified. James, son of Zebedee, executed with a sword. And John perhaps died of natural causes, but it's debatable. But the tragic part is the bad guys, the bad guys carrying out these killings, they, they don't think they're bad guys. The killers think they're good guys carrying out a good and noble, just cause. It's these bad guy disciples who are the heretics. They are the, the criminals destroying the faith. But Jesus reveals the motives behind their bloodshed in verses 3 and 4. This is because they have never known the Father or me. The truth is the people expelling the disciples and putting them to death as a holy service for God, they're disillusioned. They have never known the Father or Jesus in truth. Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a while longer. Okay, so overall, not so good news here. Not so good news here for the disciples. Expulsion from the synagogues and death. Let's do some more table talk tonight. In your world today, in your world today, what is the greatest danger threatening your faith and why? Ready, go. Now, I don't know if your group came up with something like, uh, the greatest danger threatening my faith is like the government or legislation or hate groups or terrorists. I wasn't eavesdropping on anyone's group, so I don't know what you said. But, but what's crazy is how Jesus approaches everything in this passage here. Expulsion from the synagogue and death are not the greatest dangers that the disciples are facing. The greatest dangers the disciples will face is the abandonment of their own faith. And, and sure, the temptation has to do with, you know, being expelled from the synagogues and being put to death for their faith. But, but in my world today, the greatest danger that I'm facing is not the government or legislation or hate groups or terrorism. The greatest danger threatening my faith today is me not living for my faith. It's me not living for my faith. But I want to make the faith that I live for worth everything that Jesus died for. I'll say that again because, I don't know, I just felt like that was from God tonight. That, that I want to make the faith I live for worth everything that Jesus died for. Jesus tells the disciples, here's the tough news. Here's the tough news. Expulsion from the synagogue and death. 
but don't abandon your faith. Verse 5 continues, but now I'm going away to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking where I am going. So no one here asks Jesus where he happens to be going, and the reason is given in the following verse. Verse 6, instead you grieve, your hearts are filled to capacity with sorrow, sadness, distress, and grief because of what I've told you. The tough news has moved the disciples to silence. They're overcome with grief and sadness and distress. And maybe you've been in that situation before. Where the grief is just so heavy. Or the sadness or the guilt. The pain. It's just rendered you completely immobile. Speechless. Stuck still like a deer in the headlights. Jesus' words about persecution has them scared stiff, so much so that none of them even thinks to ask Jesus where he's going. Verse 7, he continues, But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. So I know that was a lot of tough stuff coming right at you, but here's the good news. It's actually best if I go away, you know, and suffer and die for the sins of the world, be raised from the dead on the third day and ascend to heaven. And not only that, because I'm going to send the advocate, also known as the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the counselor, the helper to you. And really, it's for your own advantage. This power that Jesus displays by raising the dead or, or healing the sick or the blind or the mute or the deaf or the paralyzed. It's going to be inside of you. And the power that raises Jesus from the dead is going to be inside of you. I think that's really to your own advantage. And then you'll realize how best it is when the Holy Spirit comes to make his home in you. But Jesus probably still sees their faces stuck there in sorrow. Deer in the headlights, shocked. So he gives them a, a little more good news about the, the Holy Spirit, about the advocate in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. So the picture here is clearly a trial. Erase the images of Judge Joe Brown and Judge Judy and how to get away with murder from your minds. This is real law and order here. Untouched by the flaws of humanity's judicial systems. Here Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as a figure, like a prosecuting attorney. And the world, that which is opposed to God. Real, real important here. The world is viewed as not the believing Christian, you know, the people of faith, but it's the world unbelieving, apart from God, opposed to God, is the defendant standing there before the believing community. The Holy Spirit exposes the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. That means that the Holy Spirit will bring out into the open, will expose the true meaning of sin and righteousness, and judgment, and will hold the world accountable to those standards. 
the ultimate hope of all of this sounds like, wow, man, like, you know, you're going to be a prosecuting attorney. Like, I, I've met a couple of attorneys, a couple of lawyers, and we have one in the room tonight. He's a really nice guy. But there's other people I know who, uh, they just like to argue, you know? But that's not what the Holy Spirit is like. He, he's going to be a lawyer like, like Bill. And the ultimate hope of this is that people's lives would be changed, that they would be moved to repent and turn to God. Here Jesus spells out the sin of the world. Verse 9, the world's sin is it refuses to believe in me. That's the sin of the world. It refuses to believe in me. Here the world is proven guilty. They refuse to believe in Jesus. And so they refuse to believe what Jesus says about their guilt. But what's crazy is that even in spite of their unbelief, the Holy Spirit graciously shows unbelievers and believers alike sinfulness, their sinfulness, so that they might turn to him and change their hearts and lives. One of my favorite things is to see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of unbelievers. Some of you are like, what? Unbelievers, they can't experience the Holy Spirit. Really, what brought you to Christ when you weren't of faith? You know, I remember uh, seeing a, a person I dearly love just sitting there one day talking to me and tears going down his face. He's like, man, there's something different about you. And I'm like, what? I haven't... I didn't do anything. Like, I, what did I do? No, there's something. I couldn't even put it into words what it was. And, like, we both kind of knew it's a God thing. But seeing that well up, that strange emotion or that joy or that sadness or that sorrow or that guilt or that tug, like, that's the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of unbelievers. When they notice something different, when they're overcome with such emotion or joy, or even sorrow too. I often see it at funerals. Funerals are, are a time and place where it's just ripe for the harvest. Everyone is confronted with their own mortality. And whether we like it or not, we're approached with questions about God and life and death and all the meaning of this. And those questions at least register somewhere in someone's mind. I often see it when Christians authentically live out acts of love and service. And the unbelievers, they're just left speechless. Like, what? Why, why would you do that? Scratching their heads, confused like a, a deer in headlights. Like, why, why are you doing this? Why are you loving me in this way? You know, I haven't been nice to you. I'm not paying you. I'm not doing anything for your benefit. And yet here you are giving acts of love and service to me. Just because? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Good news. You know, something is different. Something is new. And unlike anything that the world has seen or has to offer. You know, we just had an event. And uh, it happens every year. And I used to really like it. It's called the Super Bowl. And this year was just... I mean, you have one team that they just like, they cheat their way through season after season after season. 
But uh, the teams aside and the, the play aside, I was just so not into the game or the commercials or anything this year. If there was better weather, I would have been at the beach surfing or something. Because it, to me, it just I, it was just clear to me. And I don't know what it was. It was just clear to me. Larry's out of here. He's like, ah, forget this guy. I like the Patriots. But uh, what was clear to me this year was that it just felt like consumerism overload. It was just like you're just selling me, selling me, selling me, and making me feel like my life is incomplete because I'm not drinking a Pepsi right now, or I, I'm not driving a Lexus or an Audi, or, I, you know, and I just felt overloaded by it. All of these things that I supposedly need and, and will make my life better, that's not good news. None of that is. But we have the good news in Jesus Christ, our Lord, that sustains us. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in Jesus. But when the world sees that righteousness, the ability for us to be made right with God, because, man, we are messed up, right? Apart from God, we're just nothing, right? But when the world sees that righteousness, being made right with God, is available, and not like a Pepsi or, or like some product to be sold to us, but it's available as a free gift, free of charge on our part. Now that's even, even gooder news. Verse 10 says, righteousness is available because I go, that is Jesus goes to the Father and you will see me no more. So after the, he has suffered and died for the sins of the world and was raised on the third day and ascended to heaven, he will go to the Father. Uh, one more table talk question tonight. What can you do in your life to be made right with God? Ready, go. So unfortunately, I'm actually going to cut you short on this. What can you do to make, what can you do in your life to be made right with God? I hope you didn't say go to church more. I hope you didn't say read your Bible more. I hope you didn't say tithe more or serve more or uh, whatever more. Because there's actually uh, nothing that you can do except believe. This is what it says in Romans chapter 22. Or chapter 3, verse 22. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Has, no, has nothing to do with any amount of money or any type of service or talent that you think that you might be able to offer. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. And so those things that you may have mentioned, you say, oh, I'll go to church or worship or serve, pray, those all help us in our faith, but that's not going to make us right with God. You're going to be made right with God by your faith alone in Jesus. For everyone is sin and we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous, we are made right in relationship with him. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. 
For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal, our being made right, or, or our being released from a penalty of sin is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. By nature, we are not right with God. We are not right with God. We have this thing called sin. It's an issue that we all have got. And Jesus makes us right with God through the cross. And our response is faith. The Spirit shows us, and no one else can, that our righteousness before God, it depends on not our own efforts, but on the work of Jesus on the cross for us. How he suffered and died for the sins of the world and was raised from the dead on the third day and ascended to heaven. Verse 11 says, judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. In Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the ruler of this world, Satan, the devil, the enemy, the embodiment of all that is opposed to God is defeated and God is victorious. And now that is good news. And I'd like to just highlight the, the summation of our passage tonight. And I think it sums up really nicely in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 18a. And it's, it's a, a version of the Bible which is actually a paraphrase called the message, which I, I find helpful sometimes for understanding a different take, perhaps, on Scripture, seeing it in a different light. This is what it says. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who He is, and we know who we are, Father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. That's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. Would you pray with me? Father, in light of the tough news that we may experience on a daily basis. In spite of the aches and pains and groans and situations that are just so unjust and wrong and broken in this world, we thank you that you will turn all of that into joy. Somehow or in some way. Lord, I know you of all do not discount or discredit the suffering that we face because you yourself experienced it and suffered. But God, we want our lives to count. 
We want the conversations that we have with people to be uplifting to them and loving, not just cutting people down and being cynical. But Lord, we want our lives to count. And so I pray that whatever we're facing, whatever giant is there before us, that we would know that the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it dwells inside of those who call themselves believers in Christ Jesus, those who are made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. I pray, Lord, you would inspire us to stand up to those giants we face, to stand up to the tough things that we're enduring, and to share Jesus and live for Jesus in all the conversations, in all the interactions we have with people. We thank you for the opportunity we have for this day to live for you. We want to honor you with all that we are as we close it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.